This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay are joined by Aaron Perino of the Sheila Divine to revisit their album, New Parade. Drop out and just do really wacky experimental shit and all, tons of drugs and then come back with an amazing record. <laughs> Screw you. You're the best. Yeah. Around. Yeah. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, we are on episode 118 of our third season, and uh, we're doing our first interview um, with a member of a band this year. We did a, we did a quite a few last year, and um, they were always fan favorites when we got to talk to members of bands. And uh, I'm excited about this one, Jay, and I think you are too, because this is one of my favorite bands from the last... I don't know, 15 years? Would that be... God, that makes... That sounds like it's a long time. But I felt like I just listened <laughs> to this record for the first time a couple years ago. But And then this is one of my favorite records of the last probably decade. Although well, this is 99, so I guess I can't count it as a 2000s record. That would violate yeah, the whole yeah. pre- premise of the show. You've made the point that we are old. Yes. Way to go. We are old. Sorry for the people out there who share our um, enjoyment of this record, but also our age. So that's just the marching of time so I'm, I'm i'm dancing around i have brought to the table as my pick the shield divine's 1999 album new parade and joining us via the skype is none other than mr aaron perino aaron how are you doing this evening great feeling super old <laughs> awesome <laughs> yeah somehow you know when you do a, a podcast that's all about albums that came out 13 years ago or older, anywhere, I guess, 23 to 13 years ago, you start to feel old after a while as if, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what you're doing is an, a marker of your march towards uh, your inevitability of <laughs> whatever. Anyway. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, this is depressing. I'm sorry. My, my 40th birthday is in September, so I'm feeling it's going to be awesome. <laughs> I am not far behind you. I got about, <laughs> I got about 11 months behind you on that one. All right. So I understand that completely. Um, so we're here to talk about. Uh, I, I I hyped it in the in the intro. New parade. Um, Jay and I have a kind of a history with this record, and it's that uh, we're living in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. And I grew up in in well, I lived there for a short period of time when I was in fifth grade. So in Westerville. Right near both of Jay and I. That's that's huh. funny. So when when uh, this album came out, the local radio station here, which is uh, was CD one hundred one and now it's CD one hundred two point five, mm-hmm. um, they played this uh, this the single hum from this record a lot, and you guys ended up playing here a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. Um, Little Brothers, I believe. Was yeah, the, and what was, was the that venue? like? The what's that like? Uh, the small like kind of like basement-y club that had like food and stuff. That'd be Bernie's. Bernie's, yeah. We played there like a hundred times, so. (laughs) And I used to like hang out with this guy, Chip Midnight, all the time there. Oh, yeah. Funny you mentioned Chip. Yeah. Chip is a friend of the show. He's been on many times. uh, He's one of my favorite interviewers, so. (laughs) He directed me to an interview he did with um, you and Sean. Uh Uh-huh. Must have been right around the time that this record came out. Yep. And uh, we're going to get to that because great times. We got to talk about one of the things that he asked you about before we get into the record is you guys were originally on Cherry Disc. Yep. And then that was purchased by Roadrunner Records. And in the interview that I read with Chip back in the day, you guys were sort of like, yeah, you know, we'll see what happens. And, you know, this is it's interesting with the with the time that has passed since then. Mm-hmm. Do you now look at that and go, that was really bizarre that we were on a record with a bunch of metal bands? Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah, it was it, it, it's, it was a weird era, though. I mean, when you think of the 90s in general, like, and being on a major label, like, you know, when we came out, we were competing against 
Limp Biscuit and like all those Cookie Monster bands, and then the Vertical Horizons and the Tonics. And so, I, I mean, I feel like no matter what label we were on, unless we were like ultra cool and on like Rough Trade or something, it was it would have would have been uh, it was a tough time to be like kind of competing, I guess, in that in that world. From there, you guys you you bounced around a bit. The two thousand one release. Um, I'm sort of doing the history. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in a, a weird way here, but 2001 release was uh, "Where Have All My Countrymen Gone?" That was on Co-op Pop. Is that which was is that basic? A... That was our label, basically. Okay. So it was with we partnered with uh, a rec- record chain here called Newberry Comics, and we kind of like just I don't know. It was like a a Boston thing. We were trying to like you know unite the scene and do something. So gotcha. And mm-hmm. then around this time. Funny. Yeah, we we tried to do the same thing. <laughs> right? How'd that work out? <laughs> really great. <laughs> yeah. It was around this time that um, original drummer Sean Sears left the band. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a baby. Ah, uh, the baby. Yeah. That that's definitely. He's like, I can't tour no more. So. <laughs> so totally that understand that. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's like. What do you mean? You don't want to make five hundred dollars a month? This is this is the opportunity of a lifetime. <laughs> I think you're going to regret this. Yeah. So. so when you guys were putting out uh, New Parade and then Where Have All My Countrymen Gone, were you doing? Were you touring full time, like doing two hundred and fifty shows a year and and living on couches and not working, or were you, did you go back to? You guys were in Boston, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, we, we kind of like, we went from, we had odd jobs, but you know, I'd be like, you know, I'd, I had, I've probably had more jobs in Boston than anyone I know. I'd have a job and then I'd like quit it like, you know, three weeks later to go play shows and stuff. So what was was, the worst job you had? Um, I mostly worked in like coffee houses and stuff like that. I'm trying to think, I mean, I, the funniest job I had was this, I worked for this um, company called CDM that they basically, they were like the waterways and like manhole covers. And uh, I had to like trace impervious um, like concrete things in a CAD program <laughs> on maps uh, all day. That was pretty fun. Did you have training in that or did they just sort of throw you? Throw they, you just, like a... they just sort of threw me into it. <laughs> All right. So like, do you know computers? Do you know how to like trace something with a mouse? I'm like, sure, I can figure this out. So <laughs> it's like trace the sidewalk on this map. You're like, so, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ban. I can figure anything out. That's right. <laughs> we tour in a van. We can, we can pretty much do anything. I'm the lead singer though, so I don't lift anything. But... Oh. <laughs> I don't know. That's the that's the joke. That's the that's understandable. Uh. Yes. So then in 2002, you guys released the Secret Society EP on Arena Rock recording, mm-hmm. which back then was doing a lot of interesting releases. They were doing Super Drag and yeah, um, uh, some other guy, bands. Greg Glover, he uh, he was at Electra. He was an A&R guy. Um, he's awesome, actually. Um, but I think at the time, our minds were clouded with grandiose things. So um, we're like... Yeah, we'll do this EP, but this is just a stopgap before we get re-signed to a major label or something. But, um, yeah. <laughs> and then shortly thereafter, the the band went on hiatus, quote-unquote. Is yeah, that true? Much. Yeah, I mean, we pretty much broke up. But um, but it's not like, I mean, we, we weren't, it wasn't like we were like, we hated each other or anything. It was just sort of like, where is this going? So... <laughs> We kind of just stopped. So I yeah, we totally understand that. <laughs> One day you just don't want to go to practice anymore. Yeah, you're just like, eh, I should probably figure something else out. So when did you start working on Dear Leader? Was that while? Pretty much right after that. Okay, but but it was like the initial thing for that was just it was going to be a solo project that uh, you know I was just going to like record some songs. But then you know I had lots of friends in Boston, so. My friend Paul, who owned this label called Lunch Records, was like, I'll play drums. And then, I don't know, I just added people, and then it was like hard to be like, you're not in the band. So then it sort of just became a band. But it definitely has different goals. Like, it's definitely a, 
a much more dad rock. No, I don't know. I don't know what you call it. (laughs) (laughs) There's like the, you know, the, the goal is to do it as big of a level as we can, but not, we're never going to (laughs) tour. That's, that's, I guess that's, that's admirable. I mean, yeah, the the cost involved with touring. I like the recording process. So it's, it's really, it's more of like a recording project with the occasional show. Speaking of occasional shows. So Sheila Divine played some occasional shows after the hiatus up until um, Things That Once Were, which came mm-hmm. out in 2012. You crowdsourced that album, correct? In terms of Correct. I used that uh, site called Kickstarter. <laughs> which is actually something that um, we're helping a friend of ours put together a music documentary, believe it or not, about 90s music. And uh, nice. he's using Kickstarter as well. And we're helping to promote it. So is that something that you think you would continue to use? Never again. Never again. No. It was such a pain in the ass. Like, it was just, like, um, more than I could handle. Like, I mean, I was psyched, and it was really, it was fun. I mean, just kind of, like, you know, I was talking to Jim and Sean, and I was like, we should do something, like, just for fun. And I didn't really put a lot of thought into it. But, like, you know, the amount of, like, emails of people being like you like i didn't even like take into consideration that like half our fan base is from europe and just like the cost of sending that out and then you know customs like rejecting stuff and being like i never got this album and it was like it it was just like i have a job like i can't can't deal with these people who are like angry that they didn't get like you know my t-shirt size is too small you know it's just like Anyways, it was it was fun, but I I, I don't want to own a record label. Yeah, it's that's it, it's interesting because it starts off as like, well, we're you know the fans are finding the record, so it's direct, but then it turns into like you have all these promises that you have to keep up. Yeah, I, I mean, is, is, nobody yeah. ever thinks about that part of it. No doubt. I mean, more 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 power to like Amanda Palmer and those types who like just you know give a lot of promises and have to like. I mean, that must be like just take up a lot of time <laughs> did you struggle coming up with like all the tiers and packages and things that you would offer did that get a little nah, complicated not, not really it was that that was fun i mean i love okay. those kind of marketing scheme type things but yeah, yeah. but then the actual fulfillment fulfillment that's like that's my weak part right. so uh i talked to jill cunniff from luscious jackson last year and they were doing the same thing with their um new record and like the number one tier was you got to hang out with the band and they would give you a walking tour of New York and like <laughs> nice. show you all the cool places that they played and like venues that they went to as a kid and, and that sort of thing. And then I think it ended with you like they gave you their base or something like that. <laughs> right. Did you guys do anything like that in for Boston? Did you offer your top tiers like we'll, we'll walk you around Boston or take you to, uh, to the Fenway? I think the top tier was uh... – well, one was like we'll record any cover version of a song that you want and you have exclusive rights to it. You can do whatever you want with it. And then I think I don't know, the other one was like a, a lot. We, we would actually like go to someone's town to play. But Did either of those get fulfilled? Um, a couple of the covers did, but then they never they were like both of them. The, the two people did it, but neither of them wanted it. <laughs> Well, what kind of like songs they didn't it... want it. No, but they were just like more like, no, I just wanted to like you know support this. So, wow, isn't it amazing though what the the amount of people, the amount of money that some people are willing to mm-hmm. to give you to help out? It's just, we're seeing that with the movie. Like, there's been a couple of donors that are you know over the four figures, and you're just wow. Yeah, it's... I mean, it's kind of awesome. <laughs> It's awesome. I mean, we I have one one fan named Scott Luckman who is you know he's he's he comes to every show from like New Jersey or New York and uh, he's he's pretty dedicated. So he's awesome. He's your super fan. He's he's the super fan. Yeah. <laughs> so so one of the things that we like to do before we we do these shows is we have a um, we post it to our Facebook page and we ask for feedback. Um, on the records that we're going to be talking about, and mm-hmm. overwhelmingly, we got all positive feedback about from people who were excited to hear that we're going to be talking about this record um, from Eric Grubbs, Joe Roylan, Eric Rovey, and and Chip chimed in. He actually posted a link to that interview that he did at the time. And one of the things that everybody brought up was what a great live show you guys were, mm. and. I, I think I can attest to that because I remember seeing you guys. I think you toured as a three-piece first, am I correct? Yeah. And then came out with yeah, the second we guitar player? Piece. 
Yeah, we didn't have the, the second guitarist till Countryman. So. And then that was when, um, did you guys do some opening dates for Our Lady Peace? Oh, yeah. Yes, we did. So what was that like, joining that uh, bill? They, they were, I mean, they were pretty nice. Uh, or, I mean, several of the members. Rain, Rain was a little hilarious, just, but at the time, like, he had, like, a tour bus with, with his wife, who, I guess she was, like, a famous singer or whatever. But he would just, like, show up and then go golfing. <laughs> <laughs> wow, rock and roll. That's very Alice Cooper of him. Yeah, it was, oh, whatever. But, um, yeah, they were nice. I mean, they're Canadian, so how, how, yeah. how uh, unoffensive, you know, and how offensive could they be? True. That's, that's completely true. I'm sure they're very, um, very nice. And did they offer you any free medical care or anything like that? <laughs> no, no, no socialist agenda on that one. But, uh, but yeah, it was... <laughs> They were they were fairly nice. So they didn't want to split the money equally. <laughs> they didn't do that for sure. Oh, weird. Oh, so. and then um, one of the other bands that I want to bring up before we get into the record that you toured or you played shows with. I don't know how much touring. What I don't know what constitutes a tour versus playing shows. It's right. always a little nebulous. But Manic Street Preachers. Uh, that was a tour. That was like okay. that was to be honest. That was like our first real tour, and uh, I remember when we got it, I was like, "Oh my god, this is awesome!" Because I'm sort of an Anglophile British Brit pop guy. Um, but that was like a whole West Coast tour. I think it was like ten dates or something. Um, but yeah, it was that was awesome. They, I mean, I didn't really hang out with them very much, but uh, uh, I mean, they were nice enough. So they sound checked for like ten hours. So. <laughs> What album were they touring for at that point? Uh, that was uh, This Is My Truth, Now Tell Me Yours. So, oh, wow. Which, that's, my favorite, that's my favorite album of theirs, but it could be because I heard it so many times. Well, we'll yeah. debate what the best Manic Street Preachers album is at the end of the episode. <laughs> but yeah. I'm, I'm firmly in the Holy Bible camp when it comes to that okay. particular band. Yeah. Uh, but let's get into the, well, let's get into the record, but we're going to backtrack uh, right. from the record to... When did you first start singing? Because that's the thing that I think when most people gravitate towards Sheila Devine and hearing the band for the first time, especially Hum, is the way you use your voice between Mm -hmm. the scream and the yell. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, a lot of bands screamed and a lot of bands bellowed, I would say. But you do both, and and in a a song like Hum, you do both within 10 seconds, which to me is pretty amazing. In fact, you get to the (laughs) chorus in 25 seconds in that song, which we have a motto on the show, which is don't bore us, get to the chorus. And you really get to the chorus. When did you figure that out that you could do that with your with your vocal? I don't know. It must have been in that band because like before that, I, like in high school, um, I was in like this very like it was like keyboards, like wanting to be New Order and Joy Division um, type of band uh, where I just sang in an Ian Curtis like low voice, um, and then. In college, I kind of—I mean, I guess I was—I was in a band that screamed. So I guess in college, I was in a band called the Waverleys, and uh, you know. But I, yeah, I think Sheila Devine just sort of like that's where it came together, so, where I really knew that I wanted to like do this. Did you just sort of stumble upon it, or were you like, I'm going to push my vocal and start shredding it? Yeah, I think I—I I, I think it was like a you know, like I felt like. I had to like I don't know I always had this thing in the band where like if I wasn't like if I didn't like hurt myself by the end of the show I didn't try so it was it was more like just sort of like maybe it was a cry for help I don't know <laughs> but I, I would <laughs> I would want to like just scream to the point where people were like what the hell is up with that guy so I don't know well, it also could have something- been my skateboarding days you know listening to uh, Dead Kennedys and whatnot. <laughs> And that's not something that you figure out doing sitting by yourself on an acoustic guitar. Like you have exactly. to be in a loud, a loud yeah. band, and you have to be trying to yell over the guitars. Which 
know. All these kids now who are like form bands sitting in the room with the garage band. It's like, how do you ever get to that point where you can even realize you can do that? Yeah. I don't know. I just, I agree. It was, it was, it was, uh, I was an angry person. <laughs> <laughs> the you anger don't look angry. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's funny. Okay. Getting into the record. I want to cap, mm-hmm. uh, co- cover a couple songs. I'll start out with, um, automatic Buffalo. What is an automatic That's my Buffalo? Born to Run. That's your Born uh, to Run. Excellent. Yeah, that's right. Um, and does it have any reference to the city of Buffalo? Yeah, that's totally what it is. So, All right. My just, hometown. Oh, really? Yep. Grew up there. Nice. Me too. Hamburg. Um, oh, I was in Clarence. Oh, that's nice. Clarence is very nice, actually. Um, my my uh, stepfather runs the rock quarry in Clarence, Buffalo Crush Stone. Um, really? Anyways, small world. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Uh, Yeah, it was that was sort of my like um, Buffalo. You know, no one escapes Bruce Springsteen type of thing. Got to get out of that town type of song. Oh, so it's to get the hell out of Buffalo song, (laughs) like I did. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I relate to it so well. Poor Buffalo. Um, but I mean, I love it. I mean, it's like, I mean, I would say like all my good songs are about Buffalo. I feel like, you know, kind of your experiences as growing up, that's sort of like what kind of defines you. So it's, it's sort of that, I mean, I think anyone who grows up in Buffalo has that like underdog Buffalo Bills lose four Super Bowls in a row type of, uh, mentality. And it sort of like stays with you. so. So imagine what it's like to be from Cleveland. (laughs) <laughs> my dad lives there take, take that and multiply it by about 50 and then you can understand what I, I, sh- I should be singing the most depressing songs ever that's right see jay and i debate this over which is the more depressing city to be from which is it buffalo or is it cleveland i think and, it's pretty much the same it's like that whole region it's sort of like you could like present it as one one place i feel like cleveland has had more in embarrassing sort of singular moments in there. I mean, a lot of it is sports history, but, you know, obviously LeBron taking a big dump on them and walking out of town is the most yeah. recent one, but the Browns taking off. Whereas the Bills are just sort of like heartbreaking disappointment. Just <laughs> whether it's the Sabres losing on a goal in overtime in Game 7 or... Oh, the, God. The, so yeah. bad. The, and it was, a, it was a stick, or there was a, there was a skate in the crease, and it should have been disallowed, but they haven't... I'm not going to get into that. Anyway, uh, the... With the bills and so so many depressing things. So this is something that has been going on for years between me and Jay. And then we laugh when people say Philadelphia is worse. <laughs> and we're just like, screw you. Uh, Philly's so, rough. <laughs> but at least they've won a Stanley Cup and, and a World Series. And they got cheesesteaks. So. Yes. So anyway, um, the thing I wanted to bring up about Automatic Buffalo, which is a, a theme I, I pick up in a more than a few songs there's a lot of lyrics about the future and growing up and the uncertainty of what's going to happen and i think that's what i identified because 
when this record came out, I had just gotten out of college. Mm-hmm. I was sort of like, same here. I'm I'm sort of going to be in a band, but I got to find a a job during the week so I can play on shows on the weekend. And you are nailing it. I'm nailing it. Perfect. Excellent. So that's not something that we experienced a lot when we were reviewing albums in terms of lyrical content. A lot of it's, you know, relationships, boy, girl stuff. And then a lot, some of it will be when we get into the more emo or not emo, but like the, um, I guess say experimental end of it where Mm -hmm. it's not even about that. So when you were writing these lyrics, were you thinking about that or was it just, this is what my, this what this this sounds good for lyrics, or was it really like I'm really don't know what the hell's going on with my future, and this I'm gonna pour it out in lyrics. Mm, it's probably closer to I didn't know what the hell I was talking about, but um, I don't I don't know. I mean, it's like it's at, it. I always felt like in that it, at that era, it was stuff was more abstract. But I mean, listening to it now, it, it totally makes sense. So, but I think I was less conscious about it, but. Um, but, you know, I grew up like, you know, my favorite bands were like, you know, the Smiths. And so, I mean, lyrics were always important to me. So, And it's interesting that, that you, you guys all went to college, right, before you formed mm-hmm. a band? Yeah. And that's that's kind of, I was thinking about that recently is that um, it seems like British bands do that more. Like if you think about, I mean, even go back to like Queen, like those guys all graduated college and met in, in university. Radiohead, those guys all went to university and met there. You don't hear that from American bands a lot. Like a lot of American bands, like it's guys who, you know, were sort of started in high school and never went to college or the form of the band in high school or it's like more like dropout types. Right. <laughs> so it's interesting to hear like, you know, you're you were, you know, more influenced by those bands and sort of I think musically it kind of comes across, but then also lyrically, you know, now listen you talk about it that it would you would have more in common with, with them, you know, and, and that part of um sort of you know, you, you've gone through college and you've started to think about, okay, well, I, I kind of want to do this band thing, but then again, I sort of have to start being, I guess, more of an adult. What does that all mean? Yeah, I'm, I'm too practical and I, I overthink everything. So it, it, it was always a hard thing to be like, I'm going to try to be a rock star. Like that, that just seems like the most idiotic thing you could ever, <laughs> ever try try to do like really like but um but you know i went for it it was and i definitely you know feel like everything that i've gotten to now in my career is is all because of that so so it sort of paid off but um talk about that a little bit what do you what do you mean by that well i work in advertising now but um and but you know like my first job in advertising i got because i was a music guy that like the, the agency like loved my band they gave me a shot and then it, like sort of like you know spiraled into that so and every everything comes from that it's still it's just still like sort of you know it's like hey that's the guy from Sheila Devine that's so awesome so um so it you know it wasn't a total failure it's interesting that you mentioned it seems like a lot of people that when when Jay and I were bands in the early 90s or late 90s to early 2000s a lot of those people that we know went into some sort of like either advertising or marketing or design or mm-hmm. some sort of a creative yet practical career that's mm-hmm. not necessarily, you know, it's not the typical like this guy's just going to work in a record shop for the rest of his life. It's, maybe it's our generation. It could um, be. But it seems like we kind of went, I, I have a creative in, in, or I have a creative impulse. Let me turn this into something that's actually going to provide me with you know food and shelter rather than go work at a coffee shop and try to continue this dream of being in a rock band like you said and but you know not being able to pay your rent yeah it's like how do i how do i get a pizza oven in my backyard i gotta do this so (laughs) i mentioned hum got got played a lot here did you guys notice when you would say come to columbus and the radio station was playing the single that there would be a, a spike in people coming to the shows or was that fairly consistent wherever you would play? Um, no, I definitely, I mean, I think when it was at radio, like that was when, when it was happening. And then, you know, like a lot of my friends bands, like, you know, you, you had to like keep going, you had to keep the, like, you know, foot on the gas if you're going to like 
get get the crowd to go so like so you had to like you know play columbus then come back like six weeks later and that was like the only way and then once you like let off then it, it was like the next time around it was like you know nobody was there so like my friend's ultimate fake book then like although they like you know you have to tour so hard so and that's funny we tour constantly right yeah we saw them a bunch of times yeah, and then you know the fourteenth time you play Cleveland on a Tuesday night, you're like, all right, I, th- I think I, I think I got this. I, I think we played Cleveland with them on a Tuesday night. We yeah. did. <laughs> we did. Oh, that was so bad. It was like a four band bill on a Tuesday. It was like yeah. ten people. Oh, that yep. was awful. We only um, had to drive two hours. They had to drive all the way from what Kansas. Yeah. Oh my god, <laughs> they were workers. Those yeah, guys. They, they worked it for sure. I think they were touring. I think we saw them again. They were with Hot Rod Circuit and they played Bernie's. <laughs> and yeah. I was just like, these bands are so good and they're playing this dungeon that holds 50 people. And they got Little Brothers, which is now gone, but that was down the street and it holds 250 people. I didn't, I, I guess you have a skewed perspective of the bands that you like. But mm-hmm. I felt like a lot of those bands, you guys, obviously were playing Little Brothers at the time, but a lot of those bands would come through Bernie's and it'd just be like, why are they here? Why is this <laughs> band, when this clearly can fill a Little Brothers sized venue? They had a cool know. booker, I remember at the time. So, because we always played interesting shows there, I have to say. I can't remember who we played with, but it was always like, you know, pretty, pretty interesting stuff. So, that's, that's, they definitely had a diverse, um, lineup of bands that were playing there you mm-hmm. can go one night and see a band like like you guys and then go the next night and see like polka. You know, well not polka but like cow punk you know right. spear spitting you know people are getting spat on throughout the entire show and i'm all for like you know rock and roll and that sort of thing but i'd like to keep my clean my clothes relatively clean and spit no free. doubt no guar <laughs> shows for you no no guar shows unfortunately <laughs> One of the other songs I wanted to tackle is um, The Modern Log. Mm, that one's totally, that's about nothing. <laughs> I was going to say, are you, pl- are you just playing with the sounds of the words? I think so. In that one, it was, you know, I remember like David Byrne gave a, like some interview where he was like, he just like, you know, speaks gibberish and then, you know, fits stuff in. And I, I think that's pretty much what I did in that one. So that one's total BS. Okay, well then, all my interpretations Ooh. of what those lyrics were about, I'm just gonna throw them aside. It's it's more of like a, uh, a thought piece on uh, <laughs> uh, the society that we uh, lived in at the time, um, but it really captures the emotion of uh, a modern log cabin. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's good, Jay. I didn't even think Thank about you. that. I like Thank that actually. That's yeah. why I'm here. Right. That's what it's about. Totally. It's like my need to like just live on Walden Pond because I was reading a lot of uh, that type of stuff, Thoreau. So. Of course. That's a big influence on a lot of late Huge. 90s alternative <laughs> rock. Totally. I want to ask you a couple things about the recording of the mm-hmm. record. Did you guys do this live in the studio, or was this a track by track? Uh, it was track by track. Um, Sky Brian Charles recorded the whole album. Um, like we pretty much lived in the studio for like three months and made it. We handed it into Roadrunner, and they said, "Yeah, we don't hear a hit. Um, why don't you go back in the studio and 
write some more stuff. So then we spent, we, so we made that record for like $15,000 or something like that. And then we went back in recorded four songs. We re-recorded Hum and Believer and spent like, you know, $50,000 more. And then they were like, okay, now, now we hear a hit. So, so I have a demo, a demo version of Hum. Mm-hmm. And, uh, are you aware? Are you, do you know which what, which version that may have been? That was probably the original version. So it sounds like the like the song structure is exactly the same, but you guys definitely like cranked up the intensity or the the urgency of it. It's kind of it's it's weird because the, I don't think the tempo is different and the length overall is exactly the same. But there's just something about there's a sharpness to it that I think you. On which version? On the final on the yeah, final, final version. Well, I mean, we spent we spent like you know, two weeks on that song or something. I remember the drummer did, Sean did like, you know, like, you know, 400 takes of that, those drums. I was just like, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, this is just like ridiculous. Like, it's just like, you know, yep, that's the snare sound. But we had this guy, Carl Plaster, who he did all the like kind of, you know, quintessential Boston records, like you name it, um, Pixies, all that stuff. And he's like the drum, drum guru. And I gotta say that like, from the other room, he was like sitting there, and we were, and he's like, "Oh, uh, a piece of tape fell off that drum," and like we went in, and sure enough, like it did. Like the guy's crazy. So the, the drum sound is awesome on this record. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was cool. So the amendment sounds like uh, it sounds like like vintage Tom Petty. Hmm. Like it's the perfect snare drum sound, and it's it's basically whenever I record drums, it's kind of the sound I'm going for. So. Nice. All that hard work paid off. <laughs> it did. The drums sound great. It was. It was a fun time, for sure. I'd love to be able to do that again. Like record, like spend that much time on a piece of uh, art. But you guys, as you played that song more and more, you actually you, you felt like you got better at it because a lot of bands, you know, I could say our bands and other bands I've heard, you know, say the more they kind of play a song, the more they kind of like lose it. Mm-hmm. You sort of get to a point where you you overwork it and all the inspirations lost, but that didn't happen. How, how you, do you have a, do you know why maybe that you guys were able to, you know, kind we were, of keep refining we it, improving it, not lose it. I don't know. We were just enthusiastic at that time. I mean, I remember when we got the record contract, like I could not believe that. And it was, I remember it was for 36,000 bucks, which, you know, sounds awesome, I guess, but you know, divided by three plus your manager and your lawyer takes some. You know, so it was like $8,000 each. But I, at the time, that was like the greatest achievement ever. Um, and yeah, and then that was how much we got for like a year. <laughs> wow. So I'm going to do like, the math, do but <laughs> I don't think that that's a salary for a year in 1999 or 98. It was great. It was great. It was just the privilege of, you know. <laughs> but then, you know, also, like, you know, when we got the Morse, that was like, you know, that melted my mind. I was just like, this is the, you know, all I ever wanted in, you know, my life. And so I thought I was going to be hanging out with Morrissey, drinking Guinnesses, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> I met him for, like, 12 seconds, so it was pretty awesome. Did he give you so any funny one-liner or anything like that? Or <laughs> He just came into our room, looked around, and this was in Red Bank, New Jersey, and he's just like, hello, I'm Morrissey. I was like, mm-hmm. And he's like, thanks for doing these, sh- thanks for doing these shows with us. And I was like, great. And then he walked away. Um, I hung out with his band, but it was, you know, not him. He traveled separately from the band. Oh, I imagine he travels quite separately, like... In a entire, entirely different universe than the rest of the uh, Yeah, he had like. Also, I gotta say, like the his the you know kind of like, you know, once you see the behind the scenes, it's always like you know you meet your heroes and then they're mortals and then it's not as fun. And like with him, it was like he had two assistants and blah blah. So it was just like man, this guy's funny. Whereas like, you know, Frank Black, I was afraid to meet him, but he was so awesome. So I don't know. You can never tell. That's why I don't want to meet my heroes. I'm like, who would would realize that early on? I'm like, I'd rather not. I remember we were, we were somewhere and Greg Dooley was hanging out and everybody's like, Hey, let's go say hi to Greg Dooley. I was like, Uh, I kind of don't want to, 
Like, I know what you I mean. just want to picture the Greg Dooley on the albums and not meet the real one because that's not as fun. <laughs> I have some Greg Dooley stories, but I can't I can't talk, tell about it on this podcast. But oh. nobody's listening. <laughs> this is just between us. This is just for us. No, it's for our record know, keeping purposes. I know one of his one of the ladies from uh, from the songs he sings about, so it's all true. Oh wow! It's yeah, I'm time. with Jay. I don't think I'd ever want to talk to Greg Dooley. <laughs> <laughs> Especially after you took that two by four to the head, I don't, I think that he's a mean man now. He come, he's like all fit and like you guys see, seen him recently when they play. Like he's like in shape and stuff. And yeah, you you, you miss the fat Greg Dooley days. I kind of do. Yeah, he's a little sloppy and be all sweaty and now he's trim. He's like he must be boxing or something. All those guys, all the guys in the band now, like they're all wearing like tight shirts and they got like big biceps and. Like, singing they have like with an, Usher, yeah, they're singing with Usher. Do they have some sort of like an Afghan wigs like workout P90X session or something? Or getting ready for Insanity. the tour? Totally. I don't know. So when you guys were in the studio and you were recording with your vocal style of the loud and the soft, mm-hmm. did you find that difficult in terms of mic control, in terms of volume control, or did you have uh-huh. to split up what you were singing based on whether it was loud and soft, or did you have to move around a lot? No. In fact, like, uh, our producer always says that, like, I have a built-in compressor for some reason because, like, for some reason I can I can do both and it doesn't really blow out the mic. So, I don't know. Wow. Wow. Just, just, do you, like, pull cool. away from the mic a little bit? Yeah. You know, when you scream, you just, you know, step away, yeah. like, you know, a little bit. So, But when you well, sing you into, it... like, a $10,000 mic, you know, it's supposed to handle it. <laughs> That's true. It's supposed to. I, uh... I love the guitar sound on this record and the, all the textures. Um, do you remember, from a gear standpoint, what you were using to record the record, and then what you ended up using when you uh, you went out and, and played it live? Mm, yeah. Um, well, it's it's pretty much like Brian, who is in Dear Leader actually, and we still like record. He records all of my stuff still, but um, I used to a lot of like basically his AC30 um, Vox amp. Mm. Um, just probably a bunch of times and then, um, some Marshall, like, you know, 1960s green back thing for like huge guitars. Um, use like this firebird guitar, um, which is, was pretty sweet. And then, um, a bunch of hollow bodies. So, I mean, that was pretty much the sound. I don't know. Brian, Brian's, I wish you, you'd have to ask him, but like, it's, it, it wasn't, there was no trickery. It's was, it was just some nice vintage gear. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, that's usually the best way to go. I, I, yeah. I remember seeing you live. I think you were using like uh, like a two-amp setup. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I used how, to how... do the bi-amp bi- thing. Yeah, that was fun. So how does that work? In terms uh, of just... There's just like an A-B box. So yeah. you just run one amp to the one and the other to the other. And so then you can either you know, play one and add the other or play them both. But then it like sounds like, you know, two guitars sort of, and you could run different effects to each amp. So you could have like delay in one and distortion in the other. So, um, it's pretty fun. It's a pain in the ass to, um, carry every night. Especially cause lead singers that, don't carry anything. Exactly. Right. It's like, who am I, I going to get to move this? Jim, get to work. Bass player. <laughs> Yeah, he was too busy, like you know, hitting on girls. So, it was... <laughs> see, I, I thought it was drummers didn't carry anything, but I guess that was just our... no, drummers do everything actually. When you traveled, did you travel with like a merch person or a sound guy or any sort of anybody help you with gear? Or did you guys have to cover like your merch table? When you went on the road, we like we on a couple tours we had a merch person, um, but beyond that we were like the most stripped down thing. I mean, I gotta say, like when we played this huge festival main stage, David Bowie was the headliner, uh, Primal Scream with Kevin Shields, No Doubt, and Jamiroquai, and then us, and like we're like okay, you guys are on, and it was just like me setting up my gear, and then. Being like, okay, I'm ready to go, and like, okay, <laughs> like, like no, it was like Fugazi style, you know, just like, turn on, turn on the lights, we're ready to go. So, yeah. See, I always had. thought like if you played big, sh- big shows like that, like they would have like crew there that would just do well, that for you. Gotta, you, but... you gotta pay it, but since you're only making you know a hundred dollars to begin with, it's, it's sort of impossible. 
I didn't, I didn't have friends that wanted to just like live the life or I just felt like that was one more person I'd have to deal with their personality. So <laughs> the less is better. So who was the driver? Did you guys rotate or was there somebody who was always driving? I mean, we rotated, but I, I definitely was not the driver. Like it was usually Jim and Sean. I, I, I asked that because I just got done reading Juliana Hatfield's autobiography. Uh-huh. And um, I was surprised to learn that she actually did a lot of the driving which hmm. kind of blew my mind. I guess she, the only way to control the radio in their in their van was to drive. So she basically had to drive in order to be able to, which I was like, well, you're Juliana Hatfield. Can't you just say I'm controlling the radio and if you're the touring musician and you're Juliana Hatfield? But apparently that was the, that I was the deal. You could. It seems like you could. Yeah. I don't know. We, we kind of just sat in silence with no music. <laughs> <laughs> Just contemplating. Oh, just, just you know, just, can I just have these this one moment of the thoughts without something invading it? Yeah, I don't know. I'm just yeah. kidding, but or Thoreau, <laughs> reading some Thoreau. You know, Thoreau. Everybody to think, think about the next show. Concentrate. Play better. Like, think about what the modern log is about. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so I heard somebody told me that um, that you had a eyeglass endorsement is that true <laughs> that is true um the, the yeah, whole band like, yeah i mean this this guy that uh the the place is called iq and um paul was just like you know you guys have horrible glasses you should come in and see me i'm a huge fan of the band so we went in and he's just like you know i'll give it he just always was like come in like every six months and i'll give you new glasses so it was, it was a nice thing. Cool. That so you might guys be actually the... all did wear glasses. We actually did all wear glasses, so it wasn't okay. it wasn't a gimmick. So thankfully. <laughs> did you have any other? Did you have any like guitar endorsements or drum or anything like that? Not really. No, that would have been awesome. I was like, I always wanted to get like, you know, I was always jealous of like Interpol, like who were like, you know, in Prada ads and shit. And I was like, I want that. <laughs> <laughs> You should. You had to draw more on your your Ian Curtis then, if you wanted yeah, that. Yeah, I know. It's true. You had to you had to milk that end of it. I have a version that has a uh, two Japanese bonus tracks. <laughs> right. What What's the story on those songs? And then did you guys actually you know tour Japan and Asia and? Um, we did. We did tour. We played China. But I don't know. There was like it was just something Roadrunner did. They're like, we have to. We're gonna sell it in Japan, and you know, with those, it's the CDs are way more expensive, so you have to give them extra songs. So we're like, well, we have um, these B sides, so we'll just put them on. So oh, okay, that was sort of the thing. And then you'd get like fans being like, I had to buy that Japanese thing, and it cost me like fifty dollars. I'm like, you should just email me. I would have like sent you the MP3. <laughs> <laughs> Where'd you play at in China? Um, we just played in Shanghai. It was like this, there was this like this company in Boston, um, Planetary. They did like college radio and they started like, they started this sort of like sideline business where they did this cultural exchange. So they brought us over. It was very weird. Um, yeah, we played, we were there for like 10 days. We played three shows and then just hung out and, you know, got sick on food. On Chinese yeah. food? You can find them. Yeah, I, me and Jim got, like, deathly ill when we were there. And then we brought our friend Josh, who's, like, this pretty famous photographer, and he actually got SARS while he was there. Wow. <laughs> so Worst trip ever for him. Huh? That's, like, the so worst trip ever Chinese, for him. Yeah, to this day, I, can't, not I like... can't have dim sum. Oh. I eat those, like, steamed dumplings. Things and I can't eat these. So. Uh, but it was fun. It was weird. We were like probably one of the first of you know twenty American bands that like had played there. So like it's it's hard to imagine that like the people like they didn't you know they weren't used to any rock shows. So like they kind of just stood there with their arms folded, being like, "What is this?" So it was it was interesting. Did you get to bring your own gear, or did you did they have gear for you? Uh, we brought our guitars, but everything was backline. So we played like with like, you know, bands from like Malaysia and stuff that were doing like, you know, tonic songs. <laughs> so they were cover bands. Yeah, like, yeah. So 
Malaysian tonic cover bands. Right. Is like, bizarre. They're like, here's a deep blue something song called Breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. Oh my God. That's a movie right there. You got to yeah. write it. Totally. Somebody's got to write that. <laughs> Sweep the uh, leg. Is that a Karate Kid reference? You know it. Awesome. I've always wanted to write a Karate Kid song. So. That would have been a cover to choose. Is the uh, is Inner the, takes the it best? All? Yeah, no doubt. Like that would be amazing. Who what's, sings what's, that song? It's Joe something. Uh, yeah, Joey something. Yeah. Yeah. So that what's it going to take for Sheila Devine to record "You're the Best"? What's the Kickstarter campaign amount for that to happen? I feel like I got to do that now. That just seems like. That seems like a good Tuesday night project. Like, let's just go in and record. You're the best around. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we gotta. Maybe that could be like the the uh, theme song to your podcast. Sir, if you the, do that, it will be. The name, the name. This is unbelievable. Joe Bean B E A N Esposito. Oh yeah, Joey Esposito. You're the best. Yeah, around. <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. And then you got to make a video reenacting the montage scene from Karate Kid at the tournament. No doubt. But with you guys in that role, fighting off other bands. So, like, the killers come up and you kick the shit out of the Brandon Flowers from the killers. And then some other, you know, block party comes up and you kick the shit out of that guy. (laughs) That guy. Whatever that guy's name. Kelly. Yeah. K E L E. I loved that. I loved that band, like the first album, like like a lot, like or at least you know several of the songs. But like the, since then, I just I can't I can't deal at all. Does it so. seem like a lot of the bands from the early two thousands, like Interpol, like Block Party? This is totally off topic, but yeah. like Block Party made fantastic first records, and then just didn't know where to go from there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'd argue Sheila Devine was probably in the same category. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. You like, you have your whole life to write that, that first record. And then after that, you sort of have, you know, a year. And so it's, I think that's where it gets weird. And then, you know, usually if they keep at it, you know, artists have like good albums and it's only after they figure out that, you know, you can't write an album while you're like touring and in transition, you know, you have to like live life in order to have anything to say. So... It feels to me, though, that that's a much more like late 90s, 2000 thing, because if you look at bands prior to that, I think like the third and fourth records for a lot of bands are their best record. Like, I don't think anybody thinks that Pablo Honey is Radiohead's best album. That's like, true. Cl- clearly, oh, OK Computer or The Benz, depending on when you've discovered them. Or even like we were talking about Greg Dooley, Up In It is not, I don't can't imagine anybody saying Up In It is their favorite Afghan Wigs album. Right. You're going to say Gentlemen or, in my case, Black Love. Some people might even say, like, Congregation or 1965. I like all those. Yeah. But uh, to me, the first album is, like, you're figuring out what you're doing, and then you sort of start to refine it, where I feel like Block Party, even, like, The Strokes and a lot of those 2000s bands, they just, like, they blew their wad on the first record yeah. with such well, a particular sound, and then they, they couldn't also... figure out how to expand it. They also came into a very different record business that was sort of, I don't know, I think we've talked about in this past, but beginning in the late 90s and until now, like things changed to be, all right, we just want a hit song. Like, and if you don't give us one on the first record, then you're done and we'll find somebody else that does. And there's just not that opportunity to say, you know, here's my first record. It's pretty good. You know, the second one's not great, but the third one, we're going to go like, experiment basically like Radiohead did in like yep. for two years or something like just drop out and just do really wacky experimental shit not tons of drugs and then come back with an amazing record record labels now are like no that's not gonna happen <laughs> like give us a hit now or go well, you away. can't even get on a record label unless you have stuff happening now I mean my right. cousins in this band called Portugal the man I don't know if you know them but uh but like you know he got signed like but he was already selling like 30,000 records, every record on his own. I was like, what do you need a label for? But 
um, yeah, you have to, you kind of have to have it going before you can even get signed today. Yeah. Did you ever get final or not final? Cause it's still available, but do you know what your record sales were in terms of new parade? And yeah. New parade was to- like 30,000. Um, and that was they, a major failure to them. Um, and then yeah, countrymen was like 10. So but that and was now, on your own label, right? Yeah. So yeah, you was, saw more in terms of what you got back in terms of sales, I'm assuming. Yeah, we put we dumped it all into the band, but yeah, at the time it was it was, you know, to to fund touring and just sort of like live life. Um but for sure. And then yeah, and then that ended and uh now with Dear Leader Records we sell like a thousand. What was the if you don't mind me asking, the cost difference between New Parade and Countrymen in terms of making the record? Oh, like, I, I think New Parade, when it was all said and done, was like 80 grand. Uh, Countrymen was probably, it's hard to say. We we spent a lot, like, we remixed that. That might have been like 20. And then Secret Society was like 10. So, yeah. Really? It was also I don't... like more expensive than like it's now like you know you can pretty much do anything for nothing. So I, I don't hear uh, and you know you talk about four, that's talking taking or um, costing four times from the countrymen to New Parade, but sonically I don't think that and maybe Jay will disagree with me. I don't think that there's a drop off in terms of the sonic quality of the record. Was it? Right. Did you guys start? Did you guys? Do anything. Well, I think I think when there's a well, no, when there's a record label involved, uh, producers cost more. That's how that's how it was back then, because it was just a different. Like now, like I mean, you know, for Dear Leader, like I made record, I made like I don't know, four records with Paul Coldry, who you know did the Pixies and whole Live Through This and like you know Uncle Tupelo and like all these amazing records. He oh, I mean, he did Radiohead, The Bends, and Pablo Bands. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and he, you know, he would tell me like all the stories of just like, you know, how much money he was making then versus now. Like, and he actually just quit the business because he's just like, you can't even make a, you can't even make money as a producer anymore. It's, it's crazy. But back then, yeah. Like, you know, oh, you're on, you're on a record, uh, record label. What's your budget? All right. I cost $36,000 for these songs. And then, you know, now it'd be like, all right, I'll do it for five hundred dollars a day, and that's you know that's the difference. So well, budgets for food, all that stuff. Yeah. Well, I'm, I want to go back to the beginning because we brought this up. Um, we're gonna we were gonna circle back to this. Uh, you said that your favorite Max Street Preachers album is uh, "This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours." Mm-hmm. I need you to defend that because I actually think that that's one of the weakest. Mm-hmm. records of theirs i was never a huge manic street preachers fan and like like i don't even like to be honest i have never really delved into like the richie days which everyone says he was like the best rock star ever so um i i can't really defend it because I'm, I'm a poser when it comes to manic street preachers it's like i like a design for life and then that album that's pretty much all i know oh i thought we were going to get into some serious manic <laughs> talk here that's all right. See, there's so few fans of the band yeah. in the United States that, you know, you look at when we would see, like, uh, especially when they were huge in the early 2000s with, like you mentioned, a new design and um, this out, the album that you're mentioning, you'd see them playing, like, Wembley Stadium mm-hmm. over there. And then Jay and I, in, like, what was it, 2009, Jay, or 2010, we drove to um, Detroit to see the them play the Majestic. Yeah. yeah. It was for, like, a thousand people mm-hmm. like we basically just walked anywhere we wanted to to be able to see them play and uh it was it was sort of bizarre there aren't many bands that can do that that can play to fifty thousand or a hundred thousand in europe and then come here and basically be absolutely unknown but i guess that makes sense when considering literally everybody i've ever said when they ask me, what's your favorite album or what's your favorite bands or whatever, and I say, make sure preachers are like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. The who and what now? <laughs> are wow, you familiar with this? Super are familiar, are familiar with this sport called soccer? See, in Europe, it's <laughs> huge. And over here, 
Nobody cares. No, they do care here. I hate to tell you that. As much as we try to repress that. There's this band uh, called Take That, um, which over there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was kind of surreal. I remember we almost, toured, we almost toured with Robbie Williams. Um, what? Yeah, yeah, that was like, uh, that was funny. There was and a see, chance. the, the Manistry Preacher show was a perfect example where we could have gone and talked to them. And uh-huh. we were just like, I looked at each other and went, let's just go home. <laughs> like, I don't need let's to walk up to this. Nikki Wire and say something stupid and then not ever want to listen to the band again. So, right. Right. You know, James Dean Bransford was, was, he was very nice when, when I did meet him. Like, you know, but I, I just didn't have a ton of interactions, but they were, they were definitely nice. So, it wasn't like, don't look at our gear. And that, that was, uh, that was here in the U.S. that you toured with them? Yeah. That was probably West the West. last time they did a full tour of the United States. Because when I, I saw them, so. they only did like two, two, two dates. I think they were pissed, to be honest, because they were used to playing giant stadiums, and then they were playing like Bernie's, and they were just like, what the hell is going <laughs> <laughs> well. well, Jay, do you have any other questions? No. I, it was awesome. This All is right. fun. I think we've cool. uh, soaked up enough of your evening. I want to be. I want to be on this podcast, just talking about other albums. Have me on as a guest anytime. You are welcome. If you want to suggest a record, and then come on and talk about it with us and debate whether, you know, we we like to encourage the people who actually suggest records to come on and talk about why they like the record. So that sometimes people will suggest a record, and we're like, why do they suggest this record? And it's cool to hear people's own like where they're coming from. Good nineties nineties thing that will be really fun to think about. Cool. The more and what, more what you what you've what you've done, you know, up to this point, because you can't repeat. So, but yeah, it's I'll, true. I'll, I'll find something. We can repeat fun. a band, but not an album. So right. if you check our archive page, yeah, I will. We uh, most of them, are, I'd say half of them are so obscure, you'll be like. I know I saw that you did Compulsion, and I was like, I, I didn't listen to it yet, but like I was, I, I loved that one song. I can't even remember the name of it, where he was like in a river or something screaming, but uh, in the video. But I've already wiped that album from my mind. <laughs> that was that was their only good song. So but anyway, I, I think yeah. we uh, yeah. I'm That's searching the... Compulsion right now, trying to remember what that album was like. I want to say I do. I do remember one of the songs being way more like pop oriented than the others. Yeah, I don't know. I just remember something about time. Was so. it Rape Jacket? <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think that's the name of it. Oh yeah, rape the classic jacket. Rape Jacket. Oh, the class. Yes, <laughs> classic the popular song. one. Love that one. <laughs> that was a big hit. Uh, no, I'd have to pick like some shoegazery band or something. So that would be good because actually we haven't really delved into. The shoe great the shoe gaze aspect we've we've touched on a little bit with swerve driver Ooh, um, but one. we even debated whether or not they really should be classified as shoe gaze yeah they kind of grunge and shoe gaze but the alan molder thing adds it makes it like his touches make it shoe gazy so right and that's first season stuff that's some old school for us so yeah we, we have 18 podcasts that's pretty impressive so yeah and uh I just somebody asked me today if we're gonna do Sleater Kenny's Dig Me Out eventually, Ooh. and I said it will be the last podcast that we do. We're not <laughs> we're not touching week. that. <laughs> yeah, next week it's over. <laughs> no, we have we have we have contracts to fulfill. We can't do anything with. Nice. We can't end the show yet. Well, thanks yeah. for coming on. And uh, anything you want to plug? You, uh, you want to plug the Dear Leader website or? It's dearleadermusic.com. Uh, working on a new record right now, which is gonna be interesting. Um, I'm calling it my Park Life album, where every song is some inspired from a different uh, album or recording style. So we're really nerding out. So we'll see what we recorded a song in mono with uh, horn players, and uh, it's, we'll see. So it's gonna be it'll be a weird one. It could suck, but I'm having fun. <laughs> cool. That's what it's about. Well, we'll be looking forward to that, as well as your cover of Joe Esposito's You're the Best. (laughs) Totally. All right. Awesome. (laughs) Thanks, thanks, Aaron. All right. See you. Good night. Bye.
So yeah, that was our uh, our new co-host Aaron Perino, who will be joining us on some future episodes. And uh, want to remind everybody, as we mentioned, you can make a request by visiting digmeoutpodcast.com and our request review page, and you can pick an album that we will dig into. I think that's it, Jay. I think we've covered everything for New Parade and uh, Sheila Divine. That's it. Very cool. Yeah. All right. I know that Everybody album th- better than I thought I ever ever could. I thought I knew it well already, but you got some more insights. I did. Excellent. All right, we're out of here. Uh, if you like this episode, please visit iTunes and give us some stars. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Yeah.